netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We like to dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. Be sure to check out all of our other podcasts at fxguide.com slash podcasts. Well, today we have a treat for you. Our One of our most frequent podcast guests, Paul Franklin from DNAG, joins us for this episode about Interstellar. Mike Seymour is going to do the interview, and we'll start out talking about how science was so important to the filmmakers and shaped the look of the movie. I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. It's it's deep and geeky and technical and uh, really shows the kind of detail and, and commitment to getting things right in a film like this by the filmmakers. So let's jump into this now, joining Mike Seymour, interviewing Paul Franklin. So I'm joined on the line by Paul. Firstly, let me apologize for getting you up so early, but thank you for joining us. <laughs> Not a problem, Mike. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, you and I have spoken s- several times and often about uh, films that involved you and a certain director, uh, and nearly every time I've told you that I've enjoyed the film. So let me not break with that tradition and say that once again, I've enjoyed the work that you and the team at uh, DNEG have done for a Chris Nolan film. It's just absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to, if I can, get into some of the uh, ways that you solved the problems. Obviously, uh, we're not interested in in looking at the story, but in this particular case, unlike many of the other uh, uh, projects we've ever spoken about, there is a real sort of direct correspondence between the story and, if you like, the backstory of the film, because so much of the work you did was based from a position, it seems, of a a good, if not knowledge of, then certainly estimate of uh, modern uh, physics and its thinking. Yes, well, the the original idea for Interstellar came from our marvellous scientific advisor and executive producer, Professor Kip Thorne of Caltech in uh, California. Kip is one of the uh, leading astrophysicists, theoretical physicists of the modern period. And um, he had the original idea for Interstellar uh, quite a few years ago now, about 10 years ago or so. And his basic concept was to create a science fiction film in which plausible science was woven into the fabric of the of the story so that uh, the drama that was going on was all based around uh, stuff that either is plausible or is within the world the realm of speculation based on uh, current scientific knowledge and uh, kept stayed involved with the film all the way through its various iterations uh, for a while it was being developed by Steven Spielberg uh, before Chris picked it up um, Chris's brother, Jonathan Nolan, had been engaged as the uh, the writer of the screenplay, so Chris knew what was going on. But by when he took the show over, he he definitely made it his own. You know, he uh, he, he co-wrote the script with uh, uh, with Jonathan, and what you see is is that as a result of that collaboration. But Kip's involvement was there all along, and Kip stayed on all the way through production, and he was an incredible resource for us because. You know, I, I, I'm very much a fan of science and I like to know about it, but I'm not a scientist. I, was, uh, you know, I went to art school and I've been working in filmmaking for uh, the last 25 years. And um, Kit was able to give us the uh, physics to actually describe a lot of the things that we have in the film, in particular the, the black hole and the wormhole, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Yeah, though in fact you have Oliver James as your chief scientist who in fact did study physics and was presumably the yes. the conduit upon which those equations passed from Mathematica to uh, Rindra. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, I'm not a scientist, but fortunately I work with lots of people who are. 
And uh, so Oliver is uh, is a physicist. And then also uh, Eugenie von Tunzelman, our CG supervisor, she's got a background in engineering. And uh, uh, and between them and Oliver's team, there's, there's more than just one person involved in this, they uh, implemented uh, the mathematics uh, that, uh, that Kit was giving them through the, the mathematical code. But, uh, you know, it's not to underplay how much work Kip actually put into this himself. Uh, I was CC'd on all the emails between Oliver and Kip, and uh, they were exchanging emails many times a day for several months uh, whilst developing the uh, the software, the the DNGR, the double negative uh, general relativity renderer that uh, created the black hole in the wormhole. One of the, my staff said to me when he knew I was talking to you, so I just would love to ask Paul... Do you think they're going to use that renderer again? Is it any use for anything else other than if you happen to have to render black holes or wormholes? Well, it, it has to be said it's a very specialized uh, piece of software and it has a limited application. Um, you never know. You know, you know how Hollywood works. That uh, <laughs> if, a film, if a film's successful, then suddenly there's a whole slew of similar films get kicked off. So maybe we'll become the default place to go for if you want to do a big gravitational anomaly. But uh, I'm not sure. Is it, It'd be nice to find something to do with it. So um, I'm going to discuss the specifics of those in a second. I just wanted to so I could just take an artistic um, swipe at this first, which is to say, you know, often we say, oh, well, somebody wants to see something they've never seen before, and of course they've got no idea what that should look like. So it's very mm-hmm. hard to get from concept art to just even the thing that you then have to try and actually make. But here you was a bit different. No one had ever seen it before. No one exactly knew what it looked like. But it seemed to me that Kip had an idea in his head of what it should look like, even if that was expressed mathematically rather than, than visually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very early on in pre-production, uh, Chris gave me a, a big pile of Kip's notes and said, you've got to go and see this guy. It's uh, going to be essential to the development of the visual effects. And, uh, and you understand the sort of things he's talking about. So he, uh, he packed me off to Kip's house in Pasadena. And, um, and I, I already knew who Kip was because uh, these are the sort of things that I'm interested in. And um, I was, you know, frankly, a little bit intimidated because I thought, well, you know, how am I going to be able to talk to this guy? But it turned out that Kip is the most amazing communicator. Uh, he's got a real gift for explaining things in uh, matter-of-fact, uh, comprehensible language without resorting to uh, all the, the maths and the physics and uh, arcane uh, jargon. And, uh, and he took me through all the basic concepts uh, that were in the story of Interstellar, what I call space-time, space-time 101. And, um, and the first thing, one of the first things he did is he showed me um, one of these things which is called an embedded space diagram of uh, a black hole. And this is the sort of very much what you would consider to be the classic sci-fi image of what a black hole is. You imagine a, a two-dimensional plane, a uh, gridded plane, with uh, a, a pit sort of pulled out into it, you know, the opening yep. of the old Disney movie. And he said, and I said, great, yes, I, I understand that. You know, that's, that's what I think a black hole looks like. And he said, no, that's, that's all wrong. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, this is an embedded space diagram. What we've done is we've sacrificed the third dimension in the representation of our universe. We've represented our universe as a two-dimensional sheet so that we can reuse what's left over the actual third dimension to then represent the fourth dimension, the way that this is warping into uh, four-dimensional space-time. And uh, so I said, so you mean the, you mean the, the image in the, in the Disney movie is, uh, is incorrect? And he said, absolutely, that's totally wrong. But it's such a compelling image, that huge 
swirling drain funnel, in yeah. space, yeah, the funnel in space, that that's what everyone always thinks of as a, a, of a black hole actually being. And he explained, he explained to me, no, it's, it's a hole in three-dimensional space. It's, it's a sphere. It's got a spherical shape. You can enter it from all sides. And, it's an uh, interesting point, though, isn't it? Because you mm. are representing, uh, well, let's, let's agree that it could be fourth or f five dimensions, depending on whether you allow time to be four. You're representing yeah. that in 3D to project yes. on a 2D screen. And yes. at every point, you're sort of one dimension off what yeah, you need. You're one, you're one dimension short. We have a deficiency in dimensions. The, uh, and the problem is for human beings is that we cannot visualize four-dimensional space. We can, we can, well, we can visualize it mathematically, and we can, vi we can think of it as a, an abstract concept. But in terms of actually trying to depict it, uh, make an image of it, you can't do it. So uh, that's, how these, that's how physicists have been working for a long time. It's this idea of you sacrifice or collapse one of the physical dimensions and you use two dimensions to represent our three-dimensional physical universe, and then the remaining dimension that you've got left over that you can use that for your uh, representation of higher dimensional space. And so when Kip explained this to me, I thought, well, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, how do we go about representing this? You know, what are, the, what are the images that I can look at, which I can then give to the visual effects team to start thinking about putting together a black hole? You know, the, the typical visual effects process, do a picture, uh, get it approved, and then go off and uh, use that as your template to work from. And uh, Kip said, well, you know, the, there have been visualizations in the scientific community of these things, but they're not very detailed, and they're certainly not at the level of detail that we would need uh, for our film. And I could also see that the approach that Chris was taking with everything else in the film was so much about grounding everything that we were doing in some sort of observed photographic reality, no matter how extreme the environment we were going to, the planets we were planning to uh, film and the sets that we were going to build. I, uh, I started discussing with Kip the idea of uh, him guiding us to create this thing. And Kit threw himself into the uh, the whole business of uh, working out, providing us, working out how to provide us with the equations that would then allow Oliver and the team to uh, create a new renderer to uh, to uh, depict these things. So stop me if I'm wrong, because let's jump straight to the to the black hole, because I think it's the image we all first saw in the trailer, mm. and it's certainly one you've you've done the most amount of uh, discussion about. Though I I really yes. think there's a lot to be learnt from the lensing in the wormhole. But let's yeah. just go to the black hole for a second. So the way I described it is, if you think of uh, Saturn having a ring around it, then the yeah. wormhole, uh, sorry, the the black hole is basically you get to see the other side of the ring that you normally wouldn't see because Saturn's in the way, because of course uh, light is being bent around um, uh, because of the gravitational effects. Is that just a, like a an elevator pitch kind of summary that I can go with? That Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I mean, the actual implementation of that is a little bit more complicated and was quite time-consuming. <laughs> yes. But the... Um, but yeah, that's essentially it. And the, also what you're talking about there is this thing called the accretion disk, which is the glowing disk of uh, gas that orbits the black hole in its equatorial plane. And, and the reason why we put the accretion disk in, because not all black holes necessarily have accretion disks, um, the reason why we put that in was that um, Kit was describing what the, the shadow of the black hole looks like. This is the central, uh, central black sphere. And I said, uh, oh, well, you know, that might be a bit difficult to sell dramatically 
a completely black sphere against a largely black background with only <laughs> a silhouette against the stars to define it. And it's very beautiful yeah. to look at when you just look at that in itself. But you know, you need a big dramatic image that you can uh, grab the audience with. And we wanted to sell the threat of, uh, of the black hole gargantua as well. And we started talking about this concept of the accretion disk and using the idea of this glowing band of gas around the black hole to define its shape, to, to tell us about its uh, spherical nature. And the, the accretion disk is this, it's, it's all the gas in the local region of space that's being sucked into the black hole. And, uh, and it does, yes, it sits around the equator of the black hole, very much like the rings of Saturn. But as you say, the gravitational lensing is so extreme that you can see the uh, the side of the accretion disk that otherwise would have been obscured by uh, by the black hole shadow. It flips up and over, and it produces this extraordinary halo uh, around the black hole. You know, here in London, we describe it as looking like a uh, sort of demonic version of the London Underground logo uh, for those people who've, who've visited London. <laughs> so here's the thing that I wanted to get into, because, I mean, up until now... Uh, I'm with you. It wasn't until I started digging into this a bit more that I started realizing some of the rendering consequences of doing this. And I guess the easiest mm. way is just we just leave the black hole to one side and look at the corner of the screen where the black hole isn't. Um, yeah. Just by basic ray tracing, you have to mm. do some stuff. So a ray actually finds a star and you don't yeah. get basically a bunch of sparkly noise because as yes. your camera moves, it occasionally moves. So, so that's a solved problem. But you have a whole different problem when you bend those around. So do you want to just discuss that in basic terms and we'll get to what you did uh, as it bent around? Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the Starfield background, there was one thing I was very keen to get right from the very beginning was to not end up with, uh, with sparkly stars. Uh, it's, it's always been a bit of a bugbear for me that back in the days of 2001 and the, and the, the original trilogy of Star Wars films, uh, Starfields look fantastic. You know, they were often just done with a big piece of cloth with holes punched in it and then yep. a big light behind it. But when you shot things uh, in an analog fashion, you didn't get all the issues with uh, aliasing that uh, plague computer graphics. And I've seen very few examples of digitally generated Starfields that I thought really worked well, that didn't glitter or that they hadn't compromised them by making the stars a little bit bigger to avoid the. Uh, uh, the twinkle, and you know, and don't get me started on the whole business of 2K versus 4K versus the IMAX resolution that we've got. You know, the uh, um, it would be often quite disappointing when we were doing initial tests on things, stuff that we were was working absolutely perfectly at 4K. We'd take it over to do a 2K DCP and project it on a, a 2K projector just to see what it was going to look like in a digital theatre, and you'd see it all sparkling and crawling, and that wasn't so good. But um, uh, we created the Starfield by uh, taking a, an available NASA database, uh, which gives you the positions of two, two and a half million stars in the, uh, the night sky and all their uh, relative magnitudes and color temperatures. And um, Oliver's team built a renderer that just created the star field. And it would give the stars, we could dial in exactly the resolution of the stars we wanted to see and it would maintain that at all times and uh, produce a very, very high quality result. And then that would then pass the stars through the, uh, the gravitational renderer. Because one of the things that we needed to also be able to ensure was that when the stars get lensed, they might get stretched out into, uh, um, uh, you know, into lines and stuff by the actual uh, 
the 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 the, the lens of the gravitational uh, field around the black hole, what's called the Einstein lens. But they don't get magnified because the stars are essentially point light sources. They're so far away. They're never you're never going to see a disk of a star through the gravitational lens. And, Though uh, you, was, you have all the properties of the HDR in the sense that if you have a bright star as a point, it's, yes. it's above the exposure for the sky. So yes. it's, it's an interesting combination there, isn't it? It's like uh, it's the HDR of, of what we're used to from, from doing stuff on Earth, but with a whole different problem of aliasing and, uh, and lensing. Yes, exactly. And so the, the guys work very, very hard to ensure that we maintain the quality of the stars as they pass through the various rings in the gravitational lens, the Einstein rings, as they're called. which You see these sort of uh, circles around the black hole, which the stars sort of ping pong back and forth, and you get multiple images of the stars as they approach the, uh, um, the edge of the black hole shadow. And, um, you know, we had the the basic gravitational renderer working quite early on. The, uh, they made a great deal of progress whilst we were still in prep. And then, of course, whilst we were shooting the movie, we had seven weeks before we got onto the stages in Los Angeles, which is where we really needed to have this stuff working and for the projection, in-camera projection material we'll talk about later on. But the star field, uh, getting the stars not to alias and not to flicker, um, that took a, took a little bit longer to, uh, to get right. But I think the, the ultimate result was absolutely fantastic. Because you, you know, you sort of take as an assumption in a ray tracer that you get a line that goes from the camera to out or the light mm -hmm. down, but you don't normally model those bending unless they're passing in or out of uh, something with a refractive index. And even then, it tends to be a, you know, a sort of quite deliberate bending, not not the kind of curvature you're talking about. Yeah, well, it tends to be uh, just a straight directional yeah. change, a boundary between one material and another, where you're passing from. Uh, a medium with one refractive index into another. So uh, this, of course, is this is a continuous curve as it's uh, traveling through the warped space around the black hole. And in fact, uh, what uh, Oliver James and his team did is uh, rather than just do as uh, ray tracing, we were actually doing uh, beam, uh, working with beams of light so that they could actually also calculate the way that the width of these things would change as they went through the, uh, uh, through the lensed region around the black hole. And, and the reason I bring that up is I want to highlight the fact that the engineering in terms of the... So, so you basically got a lovely convergence here of very uh, well-modeled uh, mathematical principles that we use to produce graphics because we've now gone away from the hacks that we used to have, but that mm -hmm. they're good enough that you can then add on top of them a lot of actual complexity from physics and get something that looks remarkable because it would be easy for someone, and I think someone had already done this on the net, right, to say, oh, you can do what they did at double negative by using this lens plug-in in After Effects. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> back up there, son. Because <laughs> you guys well, aren't you know, faking this out. You are actually modeling it out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's entirely possible now, now that we've actually uh, visualized the thing. You know, you can, you can make a version of that in a, what I would say is a more traditional visual effects process, which is what originally I had contemplated when we first started discussing what the black hole might actually look like. And we went through a lot of concept imagery uh, for the black hole, which was you know, really quite fanciful, um, because I was trying to explain to Chris that you we know, were trying to depict a, uh, a black sphere against a largely black background, and so he was making all sorts of suggestions about how we might actually uh, reveal the shape of the black hole. So when the, when the combination of the accretion disk and the gravitational lensing uh, came along, I thought, well, that's it. We've got something which 
gives us the shape of the black hole, but also gives us an image that we haven't seen before. I mean, there have been, there are visualizations of black holes and the way that the accretion disk gets lensed. You know, there's things like that are out there in the physics community, but they generally tended to be at much lower resolution, partly because of the, um, you know, the, the scientists who've done these things don't, didn't have the kind of compute resource that we were able to throw at this thing. You know, we chucked the, the double negative render farm at this for uh, many months uh, to create these images. But also because the physics community is not really that interested in making pretty pictures of these things. They don't, there's, uh, there's no real compelling need to um, simulate what a movie camera might see if it was uh, floating you know, a couple of hundred million miles off the edge of a, uh, a black hole. Other They're than focused... capturing the imagination of half the planet, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> okay, there's, I'm with that. You. there's absolutely that, but if you're investigating specific yeah, sure. scientific properties of it, you're focusing on very... Uh, on very uh, on very specific aspects of the black hole that doesn't necessarily go to make a, a beautiful image as a, as a side uh, result. But obviously that's exactly what we did need to do. We needed to make a, a beautiful image that looked as if, you know, we could say, okay, well, this is what you would see if you were actually filming this with an IMAX camera, if you were in orbit around the thing. And also because it was IMAX, we were having to do the images much higher resolution than any of the uh, previous simulations had been done at. And, and that in itself uh, revealed some interesting things about the black hole that, uh, that I think had perhaps not been seen before. Can you give an example of one of those? Well, there's a, as, we, as we develop the renderer, and the renderer does several different things, and one of the key things it also does is it, uh, it takes into account the spin of the black hole which is a very important aspect of the story of uh, Interstellar. The, in order for our astronauts to be able to survive getting so close to the black hole, it has to be a supermassive black hole. We imagine that Gargantua has 100 billion times the mass of our sun. So it's a really super enormous black hole. And it's spinning very, very rapidly. It's spinning at almost the speed of light, which is very pretty much the maximum that it can spin at. And this then warps the space in very, very interesting ways around it. And it, uh, and it mitigates the uh, effects of tidal gravity that otherwise would pull the, uh, the spacecraft and any planets that are in orbit around the black hole would pull them apart. And, um, and this is something that Kip had diligently done all the calculations uh, to establish that uh, if we created a black hole that was like this and we said that that's what it is in the story, then it was plausible uh, on that uh, you would be able to have planets orbiting it, things like that. And the DNGR renderer uh, takes into account the spin. And the first thing you notice is as you spin the black hole up towards the speed of light, the image of the black hole becomes lopsided. And you can actually see that in the movie. If you look carefully at Gargantua, the shadow of the black hole, the central black sphere, is not seated exactly in the center of the accretion disk. It's always offset slightly to the right. And that is a, a product of the spin that comes out of the... Um, uh, out of the relativistic physics. But when you really examine the edge of the black hole that is uh, rotating towards you, you begin to see that the spin is pulling the space with it. It's, it's folding the space over and over. You imagine it's like sticking a big old wooden spoon into a big pile of dough and twisting it round and round and round. And it's doing that to the space around it. And we began to see these uh, really beautiful um, filigree patterns at the edge of the uh, the black hole shadow as the uh, as 
the one edge rotated towards us at uh, pretty much the speed of light. And at first we thought these were artifacts. They looked like aliasing artifacts. They were these really extraordinary moiré patterns. But we began to see the moirés at various uh, resolutions, and they were very, very consistent. And they seemed to evolve in a very specific way the faster the black hole spun. And uh, we think this is something that uh, hasn't been observed before. So we've actually co-authored a scientific paper with uh, Kit Thorne, which is currently going through the peer review process and hopefully will be published uh, in the uh, in the near future, discussing our observations uh, about the uh, this uh, this pattern that we see at the edge of the black hole. Wow. Um, so let me jump now, if I can, to the wormhole because it's an ex and look, this is by way of just pointing out that you're not making a documentary, because no. in fact the wormhole has a lensing effect, and mm. here this is one of the places that you decided that the audience would, I think, be a bit confused if you went sort of the full kip. Is that an accurate way to describe it? That's, that's perhaps, yeah, that's, uh, I think that's fair to say. The, um, the, the interesting thing about uh, wormholes as opposed to black holes is that Kip had worked out uh, the physics behind uh, the wormhole that we depict in the film. He'd worked this all out back in the 1970s. You know, he's been thinking about these things for a very long time. And what he said to me is, you know, the, there, were, you know there were a few visualizations of black holes, but there's basically nothing really showing wormholes. And that's because black holes, whilst being an extraordinary concept, they exist. You know, we have lots of evidence to show that they exist in our galaxy. There are hundreds of thousands of them in our galaxy. There's a supermassive one at the heart of it. Wormholes, on the other hand, though, whilst they're permitted by uh, Einstein's uh, equations, you know, his uh, general relativity, they almost certainly don't exist because, uh, or certainly not naturally. If they, uh, if a, if a wormhole opened up in our universe, it would collapse almost immediately, and it wouldn't be possible to go through it. Just to clarify that, the almost mm -hmm. immediately you're referring to is faster than it light could get in and out, right? I mean, it's They're like pretty much, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, we're uh, talking about like, I mean, because there is a, I think, in Kip's own work, a whole thing about it happening in the froth. But it's nothing yes. like you'd get a spaceship through, neither no, size it's, it's, nor time. No, it's not a big old uh, yeah. sphincter in the sky that you can shove a spacecraft through. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, they, they're gone very quickly. So they're, they're, to all intents and purposes, they don't exist yeah. as, uh, from our point of view. Our wormhole, obviously, is, uh, is stable and we can fly a spacecraft through it. And it's because it's maintained by some uh, mysterious force that uh, is explained later on in the film. Though the, the exotic matter that's meant to do this, this is not all science fiction, is it? Because it's still got this kind no. of edge of it could happen if you could solve these things. Exactly. This Kip would uh, spend a lot of time thinking about working out, well, is this, you know, is this a tenable proposition? Is there anything inside physics that could actually support uh, the things that we're doing? And, you know, and if he came up against something which was just flat out impossible, he would... Uh, he would tell us, and he would tell Chris, and he was very active about policing uh, uh, those sorts of things. So, you know, he would uh, call me up and say, you can't do this. And so I'd then have to go to Chris and say, Kip says we can't do this. And then I'd have to go back to Kip. And which, which, just to give an example of that, is why he you can't actually have anything traveling back in time in the film. Which we'll That's come right. to in the in, obviously yeah. when we could discuss the tesseract, but so nor, yes, nor can we, nor can we travel faster than light within yeah. our universe. So that's another thing that Kip flat out said to Chris, no, you can't do that. There's, there's no way around uh, that, that barrier here that we know of. But the, the visualization of the wormhole, to get back to that, the, 
the DNGR renderer uh, was also built to create the wormhole. And the wormhole shares a lot of um, the same things as the black hole. It has a gravitational lens. Uh, it has a diameter. You know, we could have also simulated a spin on the thing, but uh, I think we didn't do that. We dialed in parameters that made it obvious that it was related to the black hole. You can see the gravitational lens, particularly in those shots that are in the trailers uh, for the movie as the, as the spaceship approaches the, uh, the wormhole. You can see the Einstein lens around it. But we dialed down the lensing width, so it's not, uh, it's not the primary feature of it. The, the key feature is the almost like the crystal ball surface of it, which is this giant, looks like a giant glassy sphere, which is revealing uh, the distant galaxy that it will take you through to. Uh, but the exterior of the wormhole that you see in the film is, again, pretty much what the physics gives us. We did a little bit of a surface treatment on the, uh, the wormhole just to give it a little bit more uh, surface detail. So it has a slight sort of uh, rippled uh, effect to it, um, which uh, refracts the, the distant galaxy. And, you know, that's, that's a little bit speculative. But everything else is, is pretty much uh, on the money. It's what the physics told us it should look like. But when we got inside the wormhole, um, we found that the, the software gave us such um, extraordinary abstract results. It was very difficult to understand uh, the key story point, which is that we're making a journey and we're traveling from one place to another. Um, so we spent quite a lot of time working out how to actually depict that. And so that does you know, owe uh, a bit more to creative inspiration. We, were, we didn't want to end up just doing a sort of retread of the Stargate or the kind of, um, you know, a tunnel in space, which I think is what often you tend to see when wormholes are depicted in science fiction films and TV shows. So we did use the renders that we got from DNGR to uh, depict the interior of the wormhole, and they form the background of what you actually see in the film. But then we created this rushing landscape, which is actually a, uh, a plate that I shot in Iceland of uh, racing over the glacier in the helicopter. And we then used that as a displacement map to run it through the star fields and uh, distortions we were getting from the wormhole and uh, to create this uh, interesting sort of organic landscape, which you see running underneath the spacecraft to give us a sense of travel. And then we have another, another distant wormhole at the end of the tunnel that we're flying towards. So it's a more sort of impressionistic abstract uh, sequence, but I think it's, it felt to me that it was, it was thematically very much connected to what we saw both, at both ends of the wormhole. And uh, it felt very much of a piece with the rest of the film. One of the questions I had for you artistically was the, the lensing effect is obviously the bending of light, the way that a droplet of water bends light. Mm -hmm. uh, you can conceptualize it that way. The trouble is my only way to understand what I'm looking at when I see the lensing in of a wormhole is to think that there is somehow a meniscus of a surface, a, a membrane, that I'm penetrating to get into the hole. Where, of course, yes. it isn't that. It's just that the light does what it does when it has a membrane, but, of course, it's not happening because of membrane this time. It's happening because of gravity. Right. Yes, was, there exactly. any, was there any concerns about it looking like it was a, a, effectively a blob rather than a, a, a bending of space? Do, do no, understand? not at all. Actually, quite the opposite. It was actually something that we were quite keen to sell to the audience because then you know, the, the audience reads it very much as a thing in the sky. I think if you, if you sit down and then have, you know, if we had a moment where in the film where somebody starts explaining that, well, it's not actually a, it's not actually a big ball in the sky, it's, a, uh, it's warped, gravitationally warped space. You know, there's so much else going on in the film that uh, I think uh, 
making that story point clearer uh, by you know embracing the fact that it might look as if it has a meniscus surface on it, uh, a boundary layer. I think that was uh, was perfectly acceptable. So we were quite happy for that to uh, uh, to read that way. Okay, so so I want to, if I can, move to the tesseract because it's the third of the sort of like connected sequences. And and if I can make the bridge, you said that you weren't going to go for the classic kind of uh, sci-fi solution to you know moving very fast, which in a sort of star Trekky kind of 2001 thing would be a slit scanner, right? I mean, that's the thing that we all know and love. And that star streaking effect, while completely not where you went over the the black hole or the um, uh, or the wormhole, does actually have a kind of a I don't know creative link to where you went with the tesseract, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, slit scan, which you know most people are aware of the way that it was used to create the Stargate back uh, when Doug Trumbull was creating that back in the 1960s. Uh, slit scan is a really interesting process. It, it, it dates back way before uh, 2001. It's been around almost as long as, uh, as photography itself. And it, it's, it's an interesting way of uh, approaching a depiction of time. Because a standard photograph, if, you know, if you're using a, a, a pinhole aperture, you're taking a picture of many points in space at one moment in time. You know, you're photographing the interior of a room or a landscape or whatever, and you're capturing that moment in uh, in time across all this range of space. A slit scan photograph, uh, by contrast, only samples one discrete uh, point in space, or or indeed a, a vertical slit. So you imagine you've got a, an aperture which is a razor thin slit, vertical slit in your camera. And then what happens is that as objects pass by behind the slit, you then take the negative and you move it past the slit. You roll it past the slit as the objects are moving by on the other side. And what you end up with is a photograph which makes a pretty normal-looking image of anything that was moving past the slit with the negative because it's, uh, as it progressively moved past the slit, it was recorded onto the neg. But anything that was stationary, behind the slit becomes a long drawn out streak and you can see that in those photo finish pictures from race courses where you see the horses crossing the finish line that's an application of slit scan photography which goes back you know to the early part of the 20th century and the resulting photograph has basically done something similar to the embedded space diagram that I was talking about earlier on the represent two dimensional representation of the black hole and uh, what it's done is it's exchanged the horizontal spatial axis for time. Horizontal axis of the image, the direction in which the negative was moving past the slit, is the record of all the time that passed over the duration of the exposure. And so I thought this was an interesting uh, analogy to what we wanted to do inside the Tesseract. The Tesseract is an artificial environment that's been created to allow Matthew McConaughey's character, Cooper, to allow him to visualize time as a physical dimension so he can then quite literally move backwards and forwards along the timelines. And the timelines that you see, these big solid extrusions of objects running through, uh, running through the space of the Tesseract, these come from this concept of world lines, which again is something from Einstein's general relativity. It's this idea that every object, you and me, every piece of matter in the universe is leaving a trail of itself, a trail of matter through space-time behind it in the past, and, I, and presumably a trail of matter uh, through space-time extending off into the future. And so the Tesseract makes these physically visible. 
And just the look of the slit scan images said, well, maybe this is a way of actually, uh, of actually doing this, that we, uh, we, we depict the, um, uh, the trails, the world lines, essentially as three-dimensional slit scan photographs. And so we spent a lot of time working out how we might actually go about that. We did an awful lot of research into different methods of slit scan. We did a lot of uh, 3D simulations actually building virtual slit scan rigs, uh, experimenting with actually moving the rig whilst making a, uh, an exposure, uh, making three-dimensional slit scan rigs that sliced the volume of space inside a given area and uh, produced some pretty crazy far-out imagery. We, we dialed it back a little bit because a little bit like when we were inside the wormhole, we found that if we went too abstract, we just ended up with a, you know, a crazy funhouse hall of mirrors effect, which was you know, visually quite interesting, but didn't really tell you very much about the story. We wanted, we wanted to give the audience a chance of trying to uh, comprehend the Tesseract on first viewing rather than um, it being uh, completely impenetrable. So, uh, yeah, the slit scan thing was a very important thing, part of it. The, the biggest trick, though, was that we've, we started saying, okay, well, the Tesseract is depicting all of the moments in time held within Murph's bedroom, her childhood bedroom, back in the house in, uh, out in the prairies, the farmhouse that we see at the beginning of the film. It's quite a complex environment. There are lots of objects inside there, ornaments, uh, the furniture, the room itself, and, of course, the bookshelf with all its books. So this is going to be uh, very, very complicated, and we're going to have these world lines running off on all three axes from all the different objects. And it was pretty obvious uh, very early on that it was just going to block up completely, and we were never going to be able to see the rooms, the moments of time within the rooms, which are embedded within this uh, lattice of the Tesseract. So one of the things that took a long time to get right was just how the lattice was actually structured uh, in order to show the connections between all the, the various moments in time, the different rooms embedded into the Tesseract, and yet also reveal some clean views to, uh, to Cooper as he's floating around inside the Tesseract so that he has a chance of understanding how his interactions with the world lines are affecting the events inside the rooms. Now, from my point of view, this gave you another wonderful gift which was the way i interpreted it is that his he, he can't send light back in time he can't go faster than the speed of light but the theory was that it was all about gravitational anomalies and so yes. you could in fact it seemed like he was effectively plucking a string and in the same way it would vibrate forward it would vibrate backwards and it's the yes. gravitational wave that would travel that would allow uh something to happen in in the point where uh, his daughter is in the room um uh, uh, seeing things happen, and that was a wonderful visual thing. Was that always that simple? To because it was just—I've said this publicly—it was the single greatest piece of scientific visualization. I, I just can't <laughs> imagine going from "Hey, we want you to imagine a four-dimensional object interacting with a three-dimensional space, sending gravitational, you know, communications back through time in a way that the audience can understand while eating popcorn." Hey, Paul, what does that look like? <laughs> Well, you know, we did have uh, that conversation at the very beginning of the of pre-production. We didn't have an idea of how the Tesseract was going to work, and the at this part of the script, you know, res resorted to really quite abstract language to describe the environment. Uh, it wasn't really something you could say, okay, great, there's a there's a clear description of what the environment is there. Let's go away and build that. Um, and the whole idea of how he was going to interact with the Tesseract to send these gravitational messages back into the past 
was not was not clear in the script at that point. And so the what you actually see in the final movie came out of a uh, a very lengthy conversation between myself, uh, Chris Nolan, Kip Thorne, and also Nathan Crowley, our production designer, because the other. Th- twist to all of this is we were discussing these very abstract concepts about gravitational waves and space-time and uh, world lines and slit scan and three-dimensional slit scan images and then Chris just threw into the conversation yes and I'd also like to build at least some of this as a physical set that I can put Matthew on (laughs) and um, so Nathan's a very important part of the conversation and um, I realized that very quite early on that the when when Cooper was going to push on the world lines, this was analogous to him sending a gravitational wave through space-time. And again, fortunately for us, uh, Kip is a real expert on that sort of stuff. Um, you know, he's been involved in the, uh, the search for experimental evidence of uh, of gravitational waves. For the, you know, he's been involved in the LIGO project, this big gravitational observatory that was built. They started back in the 1980s. He's been doing this for many, many years, decades even. So he was able to uh, advise us on that and tell us whether our depictions were just far too abstract or whether whether they were on the money or not. But the actual mechanism by which it worked, you know, the Cooper's actually interaction with it and the way that you would then see the waves propagate down the timelines and go into the rooms, that took a long time to get right. And some of the things, particularly when he pushes all the books out of the the bookcase, um, that wasn't really finalized until... uh, uh, the the visual effects artist put the finishing touches to that one particular shot uh, because it's it's a very brief moment and there were all sorts of logistical problems about making it work. But we also actually had moving components in the set. You know, Nathan incorporated uh, a series of uh, almost like the runners from a, a set of drawers that allowed Cooper to push against uh, the physical extrusions that we'd built on the set and they would actually slide back on tracks and then slide back out again. So we had something physical for Matthew to actually interact with. It wasn't all just him miming it and uh, hoping that it looked good uh, later on. So so we visualize this as the fact that uh, our three-dimensional space is that two-dimensional disc that you mentioned earlier with a mm. uh, kind of a dip in the rubber caused by the gravity. And that outside that thing, if that's now three dimensions, then we have what are these other dimensions, which I'm going to call four and five, which were conveniently drawn by Kip on the blackboard in the movie. Yes. Uh, so you could, if you had a moment to glance at them, uh, you could kind of make them out. But the idea is that his in this in this brain, as in like a membrane, as in a brain, he's outside. He's in um, outside the brain in the in the bulk in hyperspace, and he's yes. able to sort of touch. Okay, so you've got that. Yeah, I think, I think the, uh, to describe it accurately, he is embedded in one of the three-dimensional faces of uh, the four-dimensional um, Tesseract. So the environment that he sees is actually just one of the faces of the Tesseract, which is, again, it's a sort of mind-bending concept. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's where I'm going with it, right? It's a mind-bending yeah. concept. And so we are dealing with some very, very abstract concepts. And so you go for this idea of a Tesseract and uh, a hypercube. And at this point, you would be completely forgiven for like everything is just being tried to make to understand the story. And yet you guys actually do a hypercube rotation and it works. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, well, that was uh, at the end of the, uh, the Tesseract sequence where the bulk beings start closing the Tesseract. Uh, so they're basically taking Cooper out of this um, uh, out of bulk space and returning him back to his uh, normal 
uh, four-dimensional universe, the three physical dimensions, one dimension of time. And it was actually something that the previous guys came up with when they were uh, blocking out this sequence. And we were trying different ways of how do we disassemble the tesseracts. We had all sorts of things like all the planes exploding apart, like a sort of diagrammatic view. We had the thing uh, doing a more, much more conventional science fiction uh, uh, disappearance, you know, to effect, effectively turning into uh, space pixie dust. Uh, all the, you know, we tried everything. And then uh, one of the guys showed me this animation where all the faces of the cubes within the Tesseract began to do this hypercube rotation. And this is this thing you can look, if you look it up on the internet, you'll see animations of this. A hypercube uh, is uh, a Tesseract is the three-dimensional shadow of a cube that exists in four-dimensional space, uh, four physical dimensions. And it basically looks like a cube nested within a cube with all the vertices connected uh, by diagonals. Yeah, and so when if, you, you, if, you, if you were to suspend a cube in a cube, you'd have to connect yeah. all the corners of the inner cube to the outer That's one it. so it didn't fall over. But That's then it. you guys turned it inside out. Yeah, exactly. Well, when you rotate the uh, hypercube through four-dimensional space, the result on that three-dimensional representation is that the central cube expands uh, whilst the external cube shrinks, and they, they basically exchange positions. They're, they're uh, swallowing each other continually with the vertices all remaining connected. So it pushes itself inside out. And uh, the guys worked out how to apply that hypercube transformation to the, to the geometry of the rooms within the Tesseract. And, uh, and it was a very neat uh, implementation. Of course, the actual CG team that had to then put this together in the world of highly detailed photorealistic rendering, I think, uh, you know, rolled their eyes a little bit because, of course, in previous land, they were really dealing with very, a very simple model of the Tesseract, which is just flat planes with textures on to represent the interiors of the rooms. And, um, and whilst I wouldn't say it was easy, it was certainly perhaps not quite as hard as doing it with a room that's full of hundreds of uh, detailed objects with all of their extrusions running off them. But they, uh, they worked out how to do it. And it's, uh, it's a great moment because it's, you suddenly realize you're looking at something, again, mind-bending going on. You get the perception that you're looking into the surface or the reflections of uh, some other universe that's got many more dimensions outside of ours. And it's also just you know very exciting, dramatic moment, and it really tells the story extremely well. I think. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just do a step to the side now. If we've established those, and there's a lot of other work that you did in the film, but I just want to establish those three big things. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then say, okay, so you touched on this earlier. I deliberately didn't pick it up when you mentioned it, but it mm -hmm. would be all very well to solve all this in post once you had lots of time and you were sitting around. But, yes. but because of the need to inform the actors of their environment and for the director and the cinematographer to work in the way they wanted to work, mm -hmm. you had to solve these before you even started and then have stuff on set. You mentioned the, the physical build for the Tesseract, but you were also, yes. the actors were looking at black holes through the windows of their spaceships, which were very detailed spaceships built on real sound stages with real windows with people mm -hmm. looking through stuff. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, it was that was really two things coming together, which was that um, we had started talking about the idea of using in-camera front projection uh, to put imagery outside of the windows of the spacecraft rather than just rely on a green screen solution. This is something that we'd been talking about for, for years, actually, uh, back, uh, back to the Batman films. But the feeling was that with recent developments in uh, really high-powered portable digital projectors, that we might be able to create a, an updated version of the, uh, the front projection process that would 
allow us to still work with the sort of speed and flexibility that we've always been used to working on Chris's set. You know, Chris uh, always moves very, very quickly. I remember one day, I think it was on Inception, we, we got through something like nearly, nearly 40 setups in a day. Um, and wow. it was complex stuff. That was when we were working on the Cardington stage on Inception. And, uh, and he, you know, he didn't want to have to slow down at all, uh, if at all possible. So we looked into ways of actually getting these projectors onto the set and getting enough light out of them that we could expose the negative because we re the obvious application for this was creating vi images of planets seen from the, uh, the windows of the spacecraft and then hopefully other things that we could do later on. And about the same time that we were looking into this, that fantastic video that Chris Hadfield uh, recorded up on the International Space Station with him singing uh, uh, Space Oddity, you know, Major Tom, uh, came out. And there's a brilliant moment in that video where uh, Chris Hadfield is inside the observation dome on the, in the International Space Station, the cupola, and he's singing away. And you can see the Earth rolling past beautifully in the background. But the first thing you notice is that it's, it's totally blown out. You know, the, the Earth is overexposed because of the raw sunlight hitting the clouds, hitting mm. the atmosphere, and then bouncing back into the camera. And that's the look that we wanted. We didn't want that very contrived, printed-down look where you can see every single cloud top and every river snaking across the surface of the planet. Uh, we needed all that detail in there, but we wanted it just to feel like real photographic exposure ratio. So we spent a lot of time testing whether we could get this out of these projectors. So I spent a lot of time in prep with Hoyter, Van Hoytema shooting tests. We did several tests for this. And eventually we worked out, yes, we were going to be able to do this. Uh, we mounted the projectors inside a big uh, custom-built metal cage, which in turn was suspended on the end of a, uh, a very big reach lift, a huge forklift truck with a, a pan-tilt head on it so we could use it to aim the projectors. And we had two projectors, uh, both 40,000 lumen barcode projectors, which were then converged onto the same area of the projection screen. So we were doubling up the images to get the, uh, to get the exposure to produce this blown out daylight look. <clears throat> and that in itself was a big challenge because uh, the guys from Background Images in LA, the company that uh, provided all our projection, they told me, well, you know, we can do all this, but normally we like to have uh, several days, maybe even a week to set the projectors up and converge them and just get it just right. And I said, well, I think we're going to have to work a little bit faster than that, guys, because, uh, you know, they're good. we're going to get maybe half an hour if we're lucky between, uh, between setups. Uh, do you think you can do it? And I'm sure they won't uh, thank me for publicizing this because they don't want other people to come to them and say, can you do it that fast? But they, they did it. They did an amazing job um, getting these projectors into place and, and dancing them around in a very, very congested stage space. We were working on these huge stages at uh, Sony in Culver City, uh, where we shot all of the, uh, the stage work. And um, despite the fact they were huge, of course, they were filled with huge sets and lots and lots of other movie-making paraphernalia. So we were dancing this great big reach lift and these huge projectors, which between them weighed about 1,500 pounds, the two projectors put together. So it was, a, it was a, a, uh, quite a challenging proposition. Can I ask you just at that point though, uh, just about the process with the actors? So now I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I mean, I'm interested, but I'm not wanting to talk about the actors sure. per se. But I'm, I'm interested. You've got to see intelligent actors, um, you know, yeah. Matthew, Anne Hathaway. They're all they're very intelligent people in their own right. But I'm not going to talk about them as individuals. But just in terms of the process of working with the actors, mm -hmm. was it thus the case that you felt, as a supervisor who's done many films, that they needed sort of less 
um, from you by way of like they could just like you see what they're reacting to and so there was not a whole lot of need to go into a whole lot of detail of what the hell's going on um like did you feel like the process was different that this has merit just full stop with actors absolutely i mean the our actors our cast were you know of, of you know uh it goes without saying they were thoroughly professional and they were yeah. very well prepared they'd all been to see kip they talked through all the concepts in the film so they had a good understanding of what it was that we were showing going to be depicting outside of the spacecraft but you know the other thing that happened was that because we knew that we had to we had a lot of work to do to get the black hole ready anyway we started um work on all the gravitational renderer back in prep and then we had as i say we had this luxury of seven weeks out on location before going to the sets so uh, the black hole imagery the star fields the wormholes uh, all the various planetary landscapes were pretty well advanced by the time we got onto the stage at sony and um and being able to put this stuff outside on the big screens, you know, we had one screen that was 300 feet long outside the main endurance set. Um, there were obvious, obvious technical advantages for doing this. We were getting all the, ref the reflections and the refractions, and we were capturing uh, stuff in camera that was then setting the look for the shots. So we were making creative decisions about visual effects right there on the set that uh, otherwise would have been pushed off into post. But it was a, the unexpected advantage was that all the actors came to me and said uh, how much they appreciated being able to see this stuff outside the window because instead of saying to them, okay, you know, there's a, a wormhole coming towards you. Yes, we know it's a big solid wall of green, but it'll look beautiful. We haven't quite designed it all yet. We're going to sort that out in a few months' time. You're just going to have to imagine it. And that's what mostly you're asking actors to do when you're making these kind of films. And that kind of way of working has very definitely become a part of modern film acting, particularly for these big tentpole movies. But to be able to give them something that they could actually see, which was pretty close to what it was going to look like in the finished version of the movie, and in many cases turned out to actually be what we used in the finished movie, uh, made a huge difference to them. And I remember Anne Hathaway in particular came to me and said, look, I'm not somebody that ever forgets my lines. It's not something I do. But when the wormhole first appeared during the approach to the wormhole, she said, you know, I very nearly missed my cue because she was just looking at the wormhole. And um, Well, I mean, I, I remember hearing Dustin Hoffman talk. Uh, I mean, it was just like uh, I, I just listened to it. I wasn't interviewing him, but um, he said that, you know, he was Juilliard trained. He'd done uh, all this work and no point in his entire education as an actor and, and a very serious actor would anyone ever taught him how to perform to a piece of green cloth. Um, and, and, uh, exactly. yeah, so we, obviously they can imagine, but you've, you're also not just solving the problem of where well, you can imagine what it looks like. You're also solving the problem of every member of the crew and the actors seeing the same thing. Um, exactly. and that I presume just makes for an, a different on, I'm just curious about your experience on set. It just feels like it would be a different or imagine it'd be a different feeling on set for just, you know. Uh, how that yeah, runs on an effects Well, it removed one more barrier to from the sort of suspension of disbelief. You know that you were on the set, and you would be you'd go inside the spacecraft. You know, Chris has a very very uh, strong work ethic, so he gets on, gets to the sets. He's there at quarter to seven in the morning, um, and and he stays on the set. He's standing by the camera. He doesn't leave it. He doesn't go and sit down in his director's chair until lunchtime and then we break for lunch and then we come back and we do the same thing again until uh, until we wrap at seven o'clock in the evening so um you're inside that space the whole day and being able to see this stuff outside of the windows just uh, completed the illusion of being um, in the spacecraft and so we all began to talk about it 
as if it was a real thing. Uh, not and also the, it helped that we had these fantastic sets, immaculately detailed by Nathan's art department, and built on the most extraordinary colossal uh, gimbals by Scott Fisher's uh, special effects team. You know the big, the big endurance set, uh, which was about. 300 feet long was on a uh, enormous uh, rocker uh, seesaw gimbal that could tilt it up and down by about uh, 30 degrees in either direction. Uh, you know, this thing is like it looked like a like a vast road bridge mechanism underneath it. Uh, you know, sort of drawbridge to allow big ships to go through or something. So it was uh, that was a pretty impressive thing to see. So yeah, that all of that contributed to a a very immersive experience in terms of actually making the film and I think that comes through in what you actually see on the screen. If I could, um, uh, how did you work with the New Deal, I think fifth scale stuff, was that uh, a fairly seamless process, integrating that with uh, when those, because uh, you, you know, shot practical, I'm not going to say miniatures, but you know, models. Yes, we did. Well, we did, uh, we actually did, we had three different scales of spacecraft in the film. Uh, we had a fifth-scale destruction miniature, which is when the endurance uh, part of it blows up. Uh, so that's a fifth-scale breakaway uh, pyrotechnic model. And that was about, I think, about 45 feet high. We shot that outside at uh, New, Deal's, New Deal's facility up in Silmar, and um, outside of Los Angeles. And then we had a 15th-scale model of the whole endurance, which gave us the whole ring, and it had little rangers and landers attached to the middle of it. And that was, uh, that was our workhorse model. And I, we worked with, uh, obviously, Ian Hunter over at New Deal Studios. And Josh Kushner was our uh, motion control cameraman. And Tim Angulo was our director of photography for all the miniatures. And we've been working with those guys. I mean, I've been working with those guys back to uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen back in 2002. Mm. And even earlier than that, back to Pitch Black in 1998. You know, New <laughs> Deal, Hunter Gratzner, as they were then, did the opening crash sequence on that movie. And um, we treated the, the model as if it was, we tried to shoot it as if it was a real spacecraft. And by that I mean we didn't break it down into multiple passes. Tim worked out how to expose the key light and the fill light and all the practicals so that we could get it all in one pass. And we shot the miniature against black the whole time. We never put it against a green screen. So uh, there are several shots of the miniature, which we did the most minimal amount of uh, cleanup, removing the rigs in the background. And what you're seeing is, is pretty much what we shot on the, on the stage there. And we treated it as if it was a real set, a real thing that we were shooting. So we had done extensive previs working out moves around the, the, the spacecraft. And some of those previs camera moves we then exported to the motion control uh, camera to be able to reproduce them on the on the model, but for the most part, what you're seeing are shots that uh, we hunted for on the on the model. You know, so we were able to walk around the model, work out which bits look best, work out camera positions. Josh would uh, very carefully maneuver the uh, the camera very very close to the to the model because we always wanted, for the most part, to feel like we were actually on the structure that we were hard mounted to a, some part of the spacecraft. And this all came from a desire to ground. The cinematography in the in the in the language of actual space documentaries, the sort of things that NASA shot back in the 1970s and 80s, uh, and, you know, going back even further to the Apollo missions and the Gemini missions and uh, all the early days of the space race, we wanted that kind of authenticity to the work. And um, my original expectation had been that I was going to use the miniature for a portion of the spacecraft shots, and that the rest would be done uh, with computer graphics. I was thinking it would probably be a something like a 30-70 split, 30% miniature, 70% digital, because you know, that, 
seemed to make sense in terms of efficiency. But once I started seeing the material we were getting from this single-pass lighting approach that uh, the guys had come up with, it looked so good. I thought, well, let's just keep going. You know, we were able to shoot uh, anything up to uh, six setups a day, uh, which after about eight weeks of this, we had a, a very large amount of material. And the result is that the vast majority of the shots of the spacecraft are achieved either with the, uh, the 15th scale miniature, uh, the fifth scale miniatures that we had. And then we also used the full size uh, Ranger and Lander props, the, the props that we'd taken with us out to uh, Iceland and parked in the gla on the glacier and out in the lake. We mounted them on motion bases. Scott Fisher put the, the vehicles onto uh, motion bases in, uh, in the, on the stage in Culver City. And then Chris was able to, Chris Nolan was able to fly these things with a, a little controller, a Waldo. And we had these things moving around the stage, flying around the stage with the IMAX cameras hard mounted to them. So during those docking sequences, when you see the shots looking back over the Ranger as it's backing into the, uh, the docking port on the Endurance, that's the full size one-to-one -one model in the foreground, the 15th scale miniature in the background, and then a digital backdrop of stars and planets. And it's... Uh, it produced, uh, I think it produced a, a tremendous uh, tremendous result, a very gritty, realistic, tactile result. You feel, you feel like you can reach out and hold those things because you actually could. Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, the, the docking sequence, or should I say the docking sequence gone wrong, uh, mm. was, I thought, particularly successful. Oh, thank you. Yes, that's, well, um, we had some pretty full-on previs uh, with some rather demanding camera positions, in particular... We had one shot where we were mounted on the nose of the Ranger, uh, the Ranger that explodes, uh, seeing it fly apart, and the camera goes with the Ranger, and then of course the Ranger breaks off, and the camera breaks up, and the camera flies off into space. And I showed this to uh, Ian and Tim at New Deal, and they sort of sucked their teeth and scratched their heads, but they came up with a solution. They built what they called the Pelicam, which is we made a, an improvised crash case out of a Pelican case cut a window into it and inside that was the um, uh, the eight perf VistaVision camera one of the bow cams uh, Greg Beaumont's cameras so you never and thought to just use a slightly less expensive digital camera and just call it I mean it would have been easier it might have been easier but it would have been um, it would have been a challenge getting the uh, getting the quality out of it you know the, okay. the VistaVision we can scan we scan the VistaVision negative at 6k and, uh, you know, I suppose you could stick a red camera or something in there that, uh, with, high, with reasonable resolution in there. But, you know, we thought, why not? Let's give it a go. And so well, I, I, this... Can I give you one reason why not? There aren't that many <laughs> VistaVision cameras. <laughs> a lot no, more red cameras uh, that break and lose. This and... is absolutely true. But they, uh, the guys, uh, they worked it out and they said, look, we think we can do this and save the camera. So, okay. um, so when you watch the shot in the movie, that camera is hard mounted onto the nose of the Ranger, which is breaking up and falling with gravity into the uh, into the pods of the uh, Endurance. And then at the last moment, it's yanked away on a bungee cord. And so you'd see the camera sort of suddenly zip up into the air uh, be, as it was safe, as the rest of the miniature just tore itself to pieces with uh, uh, a combination of uh, the sort of hydraulically driven destruction uh, using gravity to help us and then... Richie Helmer's uh, masterful pyrotechnics. Were you on set that day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, so, was, uh, that was so, great fun to see. That. So how many, um, if you don't mind me asking, how many takes had anyone thought you might pull off of that? 
the destruction miniature, we, we, were, we were only budgeted for two takes. So we did the first take. <laughs> uh, we didn't have the crash camera on for the first take. And then we, uh, we broke for the Christmas hiatus, thought about what we wanted to do for the second one. Then we came back in January uh, at the beginning of this year and, and shot that uh, second take, which has the nose-mounted camera. That must add a real uh, authentic, uh, I don't know what to describe it really, nostalgia to dailies because you would have no idea what that shot looked like until the film was exposed and printed. Yeah, you had a very you know, rough video tap that you could look at and you think, well, I think we got it, you know, and, uh, and you just got to hope that the, the film didn't jam, yeah. and, uh, which did happen sometimes, you know, when we were doing these things with the cameras. But um, yeah, you know, but that's, but that's the way that we work on Chris's films anyway, because that's the same for every bit of dailies. You know, everything's shot on film. We print everything. We project it. Well, except um, for, I mean, if you've got an actor's performance, it's, it's less likely that, because, you know, someone can look through the eyepiece while no, it's happening. Sure. Um, no, absolutely. But we do, you know, we've, on all yeah. of Chris's films, we've done pretty extensive uh, special effects and stunt work uh, that uh, you need to, you, you generally don't know what it really looks like until you get to uh, get into the uh, projection theatre and look at the dailies. Just on that point, um, you mentioned the scanning there. Uh, mm. I mean, people talk about digital advancing, but there's been a lot of advances in film technology, the computerization at the scanning level in terms of being able to get the most out of the negative and stuff. It hasn't been a, an art form that stood still. Um, what were you scanning on and how did that work? Uh, we were scanning, uh, we were pretty much scanning in the same way we had done on all the other uh, films that we've done over the last few years. Um, the IMAX was scanned at 8K over at IMAX on a North Light scanner. The, um, uh, the VistaVision and the 35mm neg was going through, the rest of the, the anamorphic negative was going through MPI on the Warner's lot. Again, I think through a North Light scanner. And the, uh, the, the VistaVision scans were coming in at 6K uh, and the scope uh, negative was being scanned at 4K, which is our minimum uh, resolution for working on this movie. So, and then in terms of the uh, the final output, you know, it's, it's pretty much the pipeline we'd established on the two other Dark Knight movies, uh, that the IMAX is actually then worked at 5.6K, 5.6 by 4,096 and then uh, output at that resolution. Uh, the, uh, the scope, we preserved the 4K resolution all the way through to the final output. Um, because, of course, you know, this stuff has all got to cut up against uh, some pristine uh, material that Hoyter van Hoytema shot. And, um, and particularly if you go look at it in IMAX, uh, we made a number of what we call Oneg prints, where the original uh, non-visual effects IMAX material is printed directly from the original negative. Oh, really? So it's the highest, highest possible resolution you can see. Now, if you go see it at the, uh, the Chinese theater in Los Angeles or the, uh, the, the IMAX in Universal City, uh, you're looking at uh, original, uh, original material printed directly from the negative. I mean, I saw it projected on film at mm -hmm. IMAX in one of the largest IMAX in the world, which is uh, here in Sydney, at, yeah. uh, at a preview screening. So it was like I one of the first... I would think I would think that was one of the Oneg prints. So. Yeah, and it was uh, it was remarkable. Um, yeah, so so your um to to sort of close the loop, your I don't know shots of the black hole. Um, how are you like? Are you running out um, film to look at those on film at any point, or are you just waiting until you've got sort of you're delivering your finals and then it goes into the because it's this was film timed as well as digitally timed. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, it's digitally timed within the visual effects pipeline. Yeah. But we're always putting stuff out back out onto a negative because the whole film is then photochemically yeah. timed, uh, which uh, we which we did at Photochem in uh, Burbank, which is pretty much the only place left that can do this uh, sort of work now. But I'm, but I'm uh, asking, did you do that before it was finaled, or just... yes, absolutely. We we test everything on film because. You know, film adds another interpretive layer to the image. Uh, there, obviously, you've got issues of grain. You've got the way that it actually looks when it goes through the projector. You know, the shutter on a uh, film projector is a very different proposition to what you have on a uh, digital projector, and that changes the way that the film, the, the image, actually is perceived. So, it's very important to test that. We were using a company in London called Eye Dailies um, to uh, to make prints, and of course, when I'm actually finaling the work with Chris. You know, we're finaling off film. We don't final anything digitally, uh, so it all has to be projected. And the IMAX has to be finaled on IMAX. The IMAX is the is the biggest challenge because when you're working digitally, you can't see the full image at full mm. resolution uh, because there aren't monitors that show 5.6K images and there aren't any projectors that show that kind of image. So you are using a little bit of, uh, you know, you're, you're relying on your experience of knowing what works at various resolutions uh, to get the shots through. And then... You know, you've got your fingers crossed when you go into the big theatre and hope that it all looks okay because it's uh, it's not a um, it's a, you know, it's a it's a little bit of an art rather than a, uh, a clearly defined technical process getting these images to work on that big negative. Well, as somebody that sat in the audience appreciating both the art and hopefully the science of uh, what you guys delivered, uh, just congratulations on another remarkable oh, thank film. You very much, I really appreciate that. That's uh, it's great to be on the show again. Yeah, and I really do appreciate you taking time to walk through us with it because uh, it's uh, it's great to have time to explore these uh, in a little more detail than uh, than otherwise. So that's great. Thank you for making the time and getting up so early to do it, Paul. Thanks. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mike. Well, I really enjoy it when Paul Franklin joins us for these podcasts. He and Mike have a rapport and uh, get into a level of detail that you don't get very much exposed to very often. Um, the kind of perfect guest for us on the FX podcast. You know, over the years, people have asked us how they can help support FX Guide and the work that we do, because obviously we don't slam you with banner ads. We don't ask you for money very often. So we created the FX Insider Program. It's a membership program that we give insiders access to exclusive content and expanded articles. It's a way for people who care about what we do here and visual effects to help continue, help FX Guide continue and grow. Go to the fxguide.com FX Insider tab for more details. And we also produce two other podcasts in addition to the FX podcast. We do the VFX show where we talk about visual effects in current releases. In fact, there's one on the film Interstellar already released, as well as classic films. And the RC podcast covers digital cinematography. We also produce a video podcast, high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You'll find all of these along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. And in fact, I'd point you to a uh, discussion that has been going on over at FX Guide on an article Mike did a profile of Ben Grossman. The article is titled Way Forward for the Visual Effects Industry. And uh, there's many comments after the article. There's actually a pretty good discussion going on about the topics that are... It's a long article. It's a very detailed article. It's a very thoughtful article. And I'd, I'd really in, invite you to take the time to spend going through that article and um, digesting it and kind of thinking about the implications of kind of a, a discussion about a different way forward with the visual effects business as opposed to some of the things we've... Um, we've been talking about over the years changing the way the visual effects department fits into the film so check that out over at fx guide and also don't forget our sister site fx phd that offers extensive online visual effects training that can't be beat so that'll do it for this episode for my partners mike seymour and john montgomery i'm jeff huser we'll see you on the next fx podcast mm-hmm. 
please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.